A reading from the book of Genesis in the 32nd chapter. The same night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he replied, Jacob. Then the man said, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our strength and you are our Redeemer. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Today we are experiencing turmoil and unrest in the church in America, especially in the Anglican church in America, but most churches are experiencing some of this disorder, some of this unrest. And it all comes down to the question of authority. Who gets to decide the way that we move forward? Is it scripture? Well, if it's scripture, then which voices are privileged? to tell us which ways the scripture is going to be the authority? Or is it tradition? And how do we sort through the tradition? Which parts of tradition are we going to hold to? Which parts of tradition are we going to set aside? Is it going to be the culture? Do we as a congregation just simply take a vote and that's what authority looks like for us? Is it deeper than that? Or do we just say we're going to let the state take care of it? Typically, for us as Christians in America, our default has been, we'll just let the state take care of it. We'll let them make all of the definitions that they want to make. About the way that we use private property. About the proper uses of our wealth. About marriage. About personhood. And what happens is we end up in this, uh, this situation, this this tyranny of bureaucracy, where everything in our life comes down to paperwork. It starts at the very, very beginning of our life. When a child is born in a hospital, it is not allowed to leave the hospital until it becomes a person. 
and it doesn't become a person until it gets a number and a certificate. From the very beginning of our life, we have to have numbers and certificates in order to be persons. And apart from that, we are undocumented persons. It doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum we fall on. Undocumented persons are certainly not persons. Or at least they're not persons in a meaningful sense. The church, however, has a different practice. The church persons us in baptism. Baptism is the way that we become a part of the community of faith. Now, as Anglicans, we typically refer to this as a christening, and that was picked up by a lot of other Christian cultures in America. They refer to baptism as christening. A lot of times people refer to baptisms as christening because it's a way of feeling a little bit more, um, a little bit more comfortable, right? We, we come from, a, from an evangelical background, most of us, and you know, we have to sort of grow into the practice of baptizing babies and uh, you know, and it, it may still make us uncomfortable. It does in many Christian contexts in, in the United States. So we just refer to it as, as a, it's a christening. It, it, it's a christening that happens. Uh, but we'll talk about why it's a funny way to, to sort of try to, to, soft, uh, to soft play that one in just a minute. But it's in our christening, it's in our baptism, that we become persons within the church. We become united together as a community of faith. Now, we haven't had a baptism in the church in a number of months, and we're going to have a baptism in the church in a couple of weeks, so I thought what we would do is have a quick refresher course on what baptism looks like for us at St. Aidan's. <clears throat> so baptism happens in the middle of a Eucharistic service. Anytime that we gather together for the Eucharist, somebody can be baptized. Now, typically, we only do baptisms on special feast days during the year. Uh, we do them on feast days that are specifically related to baptism. So we do that for the feast of the, the presentation of the Lord in the temple, the feast uh, of, of the Lord's baptism. But we also do them on Christmas Day, the, 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 the nativity of our Lord, and we do them on all saints. Because it's us being united together with all of the saints. All the saints living, all the saints that have gone before us. The whole communion of faith gathers together to receive us into the household of faith. So in the middle of our Eucharistic service, we pause and we all together say, this is what our faith is. We recite our faith together using the words of the Apostles' Creed. And after that, we take some time to pray over the person who's being baptized. We ask God to bless them. We ask God to preserve them. We ask God to fill them with grace. And then I take some time to bless the water, to invite the Holy Spirit to be with us in this place to bless the water, to make the water an, an agent that will change us as a community and will change the person who's being baptized. And then I turn to the godparents. If it's an adult, we call them sponsors. If they're kids, we call them godparents. These are people in the community whose job it is during that service to speak on our behalf, to speak for all of us. And I turn to them and I ask them to do something. What do I say? Do you guys remember? I say, name this child. For us, the child receives a name. That's, what the, that, that's why sometimes you will hear people refer to their name as a Christian name, the name that they were baptized with. It's a 
Christian name. I asked the godparents, name this child. Now, it's never happened that someone has changed the, the parent's name. It could, but it's never happened because usually, you know, they're friends and that would, you know, create a rupture in relationships. But this is the time where we name the child. Sometimes, uh, some, a lot of times when an adult is coming to be baptized, they'll ask to, to, to have their name recited, and they'll add a third name or a second middle name to, to represent a, a saint whose, whose life is particularly important to them. It becomes their baptismal saint. They, they will often use that name in, in, in church contexts. It's a name that they receive that identifies them as a part of the community. Baptism names us. And here's something that we may not remember from the baptism service. In the baptism service, we're named twice. We receive two new names in our baptism. Names are powerful. They're powerful in a way that numbers and certificates will never be. Because they define who we are and who we can be. And they define what we can do and what we can't do. Names are powerful. Now, our lesson today from Genesis is a story about the power of names. But we talked a little bit about Jacob a couple of weeks ago. So we'll just do a quick refresher on, on who Jacob was. Jacob is the second of two twins, okay? He has an older brother whose name is Esau. And his older brother is big and strong and outdoorsy, and Jacob is not that. But Jacob is not any of those things, all right? And his parents name him Jacob, which means grabbing heels. Now, for us, we'd say, oh, well, that just means he came out second, right? He's, he's the second baby who was born. But that's not what that name means in Hebrew. In that culture, gra a heel grabber is an idiom for somebody who supplants somebody else. It means deceiver. It means thief. So they name this child the thief. They name him the deceiver. If you name your child the deceiver when, when the godparents bring them forward, I'm going to invite the godparents to change the name. Just, just so that we're all clear on that, you should not name your child that. Father Lee will not be impressed whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> so he's not like his older brother Jacob has to survive by his wits and using his wits he steals his brother's birthright and then he steals his brother's blessing he steals his brother's identity and then he steals away his place in the community he takes away his community and his identity and his brother says I'm going to kill you now and so off he goes, whoo, fleeing into the wilderness. And he goes and he finds a safe place to stay with his uncle. But he finds out very quickly that his uncle is every bit as deceitful as Jacob is. And so there's a, there's a, there's a war of wits between them. And it ends with Jacob stealing both of his uncle's daughters and all of his wealth. They eventually come, come to an agreement, some sort of reparations, but... He's headed off into the wilderness because he, he's not safe with his uncle now anymore because he's, he's a deceitful thief. And he finds out that his brother knows where he is and is near him, is about to catch up with him, and has a small army with him. 
So Jacob tries everything that he can do to get out of this. He, he, tries, he tries to trick his brother and it doesn't work. And then he tries to bribe his brother and it doesn't work. And so Jacob is now about to face his brother finally. And so he takes his family and he takes all of his possessions and all the people in his household and he sends them to the other side of this river. And he stays on this side to meet his brother. He sends everybody away and he says, I'm going to stay here. And while he's standing there on the bank of the river, pacing back and forth in the middle of the night, somebody attacks him. And they start fighting and they keep fighting and fighting and fighting all the rest of the night through. Until finally, Jacob begins to realize that this is not an assassin that his brother sent. In fact, he even begins to realize this isn't even his brother, his great big, huge, giant, scary brother. He begins to realize that this is probably not a human with whom he is wrestling. And he grabs a hold of him, even though this, this, this person, this angelic being, who he begins to recognize as God's presence with him, tries to push him away and he won't let go. He says, I'm not letting go until you give me a blessing. And then the creature does something that we don't expect. The creature says, then tell me your name. And for the first time in our entire recorded story of Jacob, Jacob tells the truth. Jacob, who is a trickster and a charlatan and a liar and a cheat and a con artist, confesses. He says, I am Jacob. I'm the deceiver. I'm the supplanter. I'm the heel grabber. And then the Lord speaks to him and says, no. He says, you are Israel. Israel means you are triumphant because you are mine. And Jacob limps away from that encounter with the living God, a new person. A new person who is going to humble himself and be reconciled to his brother. A new person who is going to restore the brokenness in his own family. A new person whose family is going to become a new nation. And a new nation in whom God himself will become incarnate to set us free from sin and death. Jacob tells the truth, and he's changed by a new name. The same thing happens to us in our baptism. We are named by the church. The church gathers around us, brings us to these waters of new birth, gives us a new name, and then as the priest, I get to say something to them. Not only do you have a new name from us, but now Christ claims you as his own. You receive a name from us, and now you receive Christ's name also. And they receive the sign of the cross, marked with holy oil. We carry names around with us all the time. You carried names with you when you came in here today. 
Some of those names were given to you by other people. Some of those are names that you have given to yourself. Some of those are names that you advertise. You share them with other people who are around you. And some of the names that you keep, you keep close and secret and hidden because they fill you with shame and they fill you with pain. Some of those names are cheater and faithless and hopeless, worthless, discouraged, alone, coward, bully, unloved, unlovable, disappointment, disappointed, abused, abuser. All of us have these names that are attached to us from other people and from ourselves. We carry them along with us. You know the names because you hold them close in your own heart. But this place is God's house. This place is the throne of mercy. This place is the seat of grace. This place, we fall down before the feet of Jesus and we hear him speak to us and say, no, you belong to me. You are my child. You are my beloved. You fill my heart with joy. Those are the only names that God ever says about you. Mine, my beloved, my delight, my joy. That's your true name. And your true name casts down every lie that the world and the flesh and the devil tell to keep you away from Christ and away from his grace. That true name casts down every lie that keeps you away from the throne where you can receive mercy and healing and wholeness and hope. Your true name destroys every lie that pushes you away from community, pushes you away from your inheritance, pushes you away from your father. But the father says to you, you are my beloved and I delight in you. Christ says, I bought you and chose you. I restored you and made you whole. The Holy Spirit says to you, I am with you always. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Those are the words that Christ speaks to us. Last week we talked about that final prayer that we pray, the prayer of humble access as we draw near to Christ in the Eucharist. We recognize every time that we come near Christ, we're not worthy to gather up the crumbs under your table. But you, God, always show mercy. You are a God who delights in showing mercy. You are the God of our salvation, and you give us life. That's Jesus. He gives everything that he has for you and for me, holding nothing back, expecting nothing in return. He calls to us, draw near to me. Come near to my throne. Taste and see that the Lord is good. This is a place where healing happens. 
place where healing begins because here you and I receive our true names. Here you and I can be who God made us to be. And we do that together as one body. Because we share one bread. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you stand with me?